The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 15, The Progressives, Part 4. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, welcome back. Season 3 continues to roll right along. I hope you're enjoying this one as much as I am. Feel free to join us on Facebook. I finally broke down and created a page, so head over there, like the page, and let's get a discussion going. You can also follow me on Twitter. The handle on Twitter is AmericanHisCast, or at AmericanHisCast. So that's our social media thing taken care of for this episode. If you want to support the show... There are three main ways to do that. First, head over to iTunes or Podchaser or wherever you listen to the show and give us a review. Even just a rating helps, although a review is better. Speaking of reviews, I have a few to mention. And as always, even if you give me a negative review, I will give you a shout out. Although I do admit, if you want to give me some criticism, the best way to do it is through email. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. I answer each and every email, so don't think that I'm just going to ignore you. Okay, so the first review is from S.C. Janet, who says that I'm a mouthpiece of the extreme right and even offers a quote. Janet, you get an F, as the quote you attribute to me is not something that I said. We don't make up quotes in history. If you want to quote me, get the quote right. Another review was from Dante1212. Now, interestingly, according to Dante, I'm... Very, quote, liberally biased, so accuracy is certainly in question, end quote. So we've got Janet, who thinks that I'm a mouthpiece of the alt-right, and Dante, who thinks I'm a mouthpiece of the far left. I guess I must be doing something right. Next, we have Lucas PW, who gave us five stars and says, this is one of his favorite podcasts. Thank you, Lucas. Um, I'm happy to hear that, and I hope that we can become your favorite one here. Finally, we have um, good app. 7887, who also gave us five stars and says they always look forward to spending 20 or 30 minutes with me and they come away with lots of interesting facts. I'm glad you're also enjoying the show. Hopefully this episode will give you a few more interesting facts. Okay, another way that you can support the show, um, it's very easy. Next time you purchase something from Amazon, please do so through our show webpage. All you have to do is go to www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com On the resource page, you'll see the sources that are used to create the show. Just click on one of them, and you'll find yourself on Amazon. You need not purchase the source. Just as long as you enter Amazon through our link, we will get a few pennies from them. And it costs you absolutely nothing. So, we both win. Finally, a great way to support the show is through our Patreon site. For $5 a month, you'll get access to the show ahead of time, and it will be commercial-free. As a matter of fact, starting with this show, the Patreon version will start immediately after the song of the week. So if you don't like all this crass commercialism and just want to get on with it, um, Patreon is the way to go. You also need to, uh, you will also get access to the bonus show 1983, the year the world almost ended, as well as special bonus show that I released on fascism. All right, so enough of that. Um, This week, our song of the week is Moonlight Bay by American Quartet. We'll see you on the other side. Oh, <laughs> 
aspect of the progressive era that we haven't discussed yet is the Supreme Court. The court, which could be described as conservative, struck down many of the progressive laws as unconstitutional. Now, sometimes I see and hear people talk about the court as if it's infallible. Of course, that's just ridiculous. They are not the high priests of the Constitution. They're human beings, and they do make mistakes. Now, having said that, let's look at several cases. The first is Lochner versus New York. Decided in 1905, this case represented a setback for the 10-hour workday movement as the court invalidated a New York law which forbade bakers from working more than 10 hours a day. Eventually, this was reversed in the case Bunting v. Oregon. This case decided in 1917. um, The court now upheld a 10-hour law for factory workers. So as you can see, they bounced back and forth here even just, what, a decade later. Um, The third case was decided in 1918. Now, this case... Hamer v. Dagenhart, saw the court overturn the Child Labor Act of 1916. The reason was that the issue of child labor was a state issue rather than a federal one. Now, I would say that in this case, the court got it right. Now, before you go run off thinking that I am for child labor, uh, let me explain. First, I'm not for child labor. However, nowhere in the Constitution does it say that the general government has the authority to legislate on issues of child labor. Therefore, the Tenth Amendment kicks in. And if you don't remember... The Tenth Amendment says that any powers not explicitly given to the federal government are reserved to the states. Now, be that as it may, in 1923, the court in Adkins v. Children's Hospital overturned a 1918 minimum wage law in Washington, D.C. for women. The reasoning here was that the 19th Amendment gave women unprecedented influence in politics and that protective legislation in the workplace was no longer needed. Further, the court reasoned the ability of the legislature to impose Uh, Minimum wages also gave them the ability to impose maximum wages, a power that was unfair to businesses. I'm not sure that I agree with that reasoning. While I do feel that minimum wage laws cause unemployment and are a negative, um, I think it's entirely within the rights of states or local communities to enact such laws. And the final case um, that I want to look at is Schenck uh, Schenck versus New York, uh, United States, sorry. This case, handed down in 1919, upheld the Espionage and Sedition Acts. Now, we're going to talk more about those two laws in a future episode of the, uh, the United States in World War I. Suffice it to say that these laws should have been struck down, as they make it illegal to speak out against the war and to criticize the government. Um, if that's not a violation of the Constitution, then I don't know what is. All right, now when it comes to the progressive era, one must discuss the topic of prohibition. This was a movement that can trace its roots back to 1874 at the very least, maybe even earlier. In the aftermath of the Civil War, there appeared to be an increase in liquor consumption. Furthermore, saloons in the late 19th century were an exclusively male domain. Now, to combat this rise in alcoholism, 
The Women's Christian Temperance Union was formed in 1874. Led by Frances Willard, it placed enormous pressure on states to abolish alcohol and enjoyed some success in that endeavor. The WCTU was the most important female organization of the 19th century and one of the most powerful lobbying groups out there. For a time, it was also the most important female suffrage group in the late 19th century. However, soon a male organization was formed when, in 1893, the Anti-Saloon League was created. They picked up the WCTU's fight and had the political connection needed to get legislation passed. Thus, by 1900, 25% of Americans were living in communities with restrictions on alcohol. Several states and numerous counties passed dry laws, which controlled, restricted, or abolished alcohol during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. There can be no doubt that the Progressive Era gave increased momentum to the Prohibition movement. By 1914, half of the United States population lived in dry territory. Three-quarters of the total land area of the United States had outlawed the saloon. However, big cities remained wet as they contained large immigrant populations who had a tradition of consuming alcohol. Now, believe it or not, the movement towards total prohibition gained its final impetus needed to ban alcohol throughout the nation thanks to World War I. The attitude of sacrifice during the war made alcohol drinking seem selfish and unpatriotic. Congress passed laws limiting the production of alcoholic beverages. The ingredients used in these drinks could be used for industrial purposes, as well as to feeding armies or those who were dislocated by the fighting. Thus, in 1919, you get the passage of the 18th Amendment. This banned the sale, transport, manufacturing, and consumption of alcohol. Further, Congress passed the Volstead Act that same year, which enforced the 18th Amendment. However, by 1933, it was clear that prohibition had been one of the great failures of the Progressive Era. The movement and its followers had gone too far in trying to regulate society and personal behavior. Now, another aspect of the Progressive Era which we must address is the women's suffrage movement. While some might think this was a 20th century movement, it actually started in 1848 with the Seneca Falls Convention in New York. Led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, as well as a bit later by Susan B. Anthony, women fought a long battle to have their right to take part in the political process acknowledged. Now note, I didn't say they gained the right. They always had the right, at least as far as I'm concerned. Remember, the government does not give you rights. If they did, then they could take them away. You have rights by virtue of your humanity. Of course, you say, they certainly can take them away. They have the guns, they have the military, the police. That's correct, but you still have your rights. They're inseparable from you. They may not acknowledge them, but that's a whole different question. Now, while the movement started off united, by the late 19th century, it split into two factions. First, you had the National Women's Suffrage Association. It was led by Stanton and Anthony. It forbade men from being a part of the organization. The second organization was the American Women's Suffrage Association, led by Lucy Stone. This group welcomed men. However, in 1893, they merged to form the National American Women's Suffrage Association, also known as NASA. The merger came after the movement had already seen some success. By 1890, women had partial suffrage in 19 states. The western states of Wyoming and Utah, not exactly the most progressive states, at least by today's standards, were first to grant suffrage in 1869, and then numerous states followed. Now, over the next two decades, the movement continued to grow. In 1893, NASA had 13,000 members, and by 1910, now under the leadership of Carrie Chapman Catt, it had 75,000 members. So let's talk about Chapman Catt for a moment. She was the most effective leader of the new generation of suffrage proponents. 
Further, she de-emphasized the argument that women deserved the vote as a matter of right because they were equal to men in all respects. Instead, she essentially turned the argument on its head. She stressed the desirability of suffrage so women would be able to continue to discharge their traditional duties as homemakers and mothers in an increasingly public world. And it worked. More states passed suffrage laws. And lastly, she came up with the winning plan, which emphasized lobbying Congress, effective meetings, and holding parades. She also publicly emphasized the contributions of women to the war effort. And by that, I mean World War I. This led President Wilson to urge Congress to approve suffrage. Initially, he did not support female suffrage, but Katz's efforts to, uh, as well as those of Alice Paul, forced his hand. Now, speaking of Alice Paul, any discussion of this era would be remiss if it did not include Miss Paul. She, along with Lucy Barnes, formed the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage in 1913. They used much more militant tactics than the aforementioned NASA. In 1916, they picketed the White House and even used hunger strikes as a weapon to achieve their goal. Further, Paul put forth the Equal Rights Amendment after 1920. This proposed amendment would have given women absolute equality with men. It did not pass, but it was readopted in the 1960s and passed Congress in 1972. However, it died in 1982 when three-quarters of the states did not ratify it. Of course, the 19th Amendment passed in 1920 and granted women full suffrage. Okay, let's talk about African Americans and the Progressive Era. President Roosevelt was criticized by Southerners for allowing Booker T. Washington to dine in the White House. The effect was that T.R. never again publicly supported African Americans. And the reality is that, during the Progressive Era, relations between white and black Americans made very few gains. It was during the Progressive Era that we had the great African American migration northward during World War I. By 1920, 2 million blacks lived in the North out of a total of 11 million. Part of the motivation was economic and part of it was their desire to escape the poverty and the discrimination of the South. As you can imagine, they didn't escape either. Race riots broke out, largely due to blacks moving into neighborhoods in the predominantly white northern cities. The worst was the Chicago race riot of 1919, which lasted five days as black workers and returning World War I veterans clashed. 23 blacks and 15 whites ended up dying in the violence, with 520 people seriously injured. Over 1,000 people were left homeless, and federal troops were called in to quell the destruction. Additionally, a large number of lynchings continued between 1890 and 1920. But African Americans did try and end this. Um, Ida B. Wells Barnett was an influential leader of the anti-lynching movement. Due in part to her efforts, a 25% decrease in lynchings occurred after 19, 1892, the peak year for lynchings. She also helped to found an organization called the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Now what's more, you had W.E.B. Du Bois, who opposed Booker T. Washington's accommodation policies and demanded immediate social and economic equality for African Americans. Now in contrast to Washington, who was a former slave, Du Bois was raised in Massachusetts. He called Washington and Uncle Tom for condemning blacks to manual labor and perpetual inferiority. It was his opposition to Booker T., that led to the formation of the Niagara Movement. They demanded an immediate end to segregation and discrimination in labor unions, the courts, and public facilities. Further, it argued for equal economic and educational opportunities. Du Bois demanded that the talented tenth of the black community be given full and immediate access to the mainstream of American life. 
The idea was that it would work to lift the entire African-American community. Now, a second group that organized for increased rights for African-Americans was the aforementioned NAACP. After the race rights in Springfield in 1909, a group of white progressives, including Jane Addams, John Dewey, William Dean Howells, and editor Oswald Garrison Villiard, helped form the NAACP in 1910. Du Bois became the director of publicity and research and the editor of the group's journal, Crisis. The NAACP ended up adopting many of the goals of the Niagara movement, and by 1914, it had 50 branches and 6,000 members. By the 1930s, it was a predominantly black organization. In the end, the activism of Washington, Du Bois, and others led to some advances. Black illiteracy rate was cut in half between 1900 and 1910, and black ownership of land increased by 10%. So let's talk about Wilson and African Americans. Wilson, without a doubt, had white supremacist tendencies, as did his wife. He wrote a two-volume history of the United States, which is now notorious for its racist view of Reconstruction. He was a great admirer of D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, a film which glorified the Ku Klux Klan. He would attempt to push through several pieces of legislation which limited the civil rights of African Americans. However, he was thankfully never able to get them through Congress. What he was able to do, however, was preside over increasing segregation in the federal bureaucracy. This situation of segregating African Americans in the bureaucracy would last up until the 1960s. And finally, thanks to Wilson, African Americans were effectively left out of the Democratic Party until the 1930s. Wilson appointed Southern whites to offices that had been, at least since the Civil War, reserved for blacks. Finally, let's talk about the dark side of progressivism and the progressives. In this section, I want to discuss six different things that are part of this dark side to the movement and its adherents. First, progressives have been criticized for attempting to impose their middle-class WASP values on all of society. Now, I'll go into this a little bit further in the next episode and serve kind of a wrap-up to this mini-series within the series. But here are some examples. American Indian children were taken from their families and placed in boarding schools to assimilate them due to the Dawes Severality Act of 1887. Further, Wilson, during World War I, spoke out against what he termed hyphenated Americans, who strongly valued the culture of their origin. But he wasn't the only one. The progressives really did not like the idea of an America that resembled a quilt. To them, it should be uniform and resemble a blanket. Secondly, the progressives often supported the segregation of blacks to prevent social tensions. The WCTU president, Francis Willard, claimed drunkenness justified segregating its meetings. This associating of African Americans with things like alcohol and later illegal drugs started here with the progressives. Third, progressives were increasingly nativist and supported harsh anti-immigration laws in the 1920s. Some supported the racist KKK in the 1910s and the 1920s. A further area of, drunken, of darkness related to the third was the progressive trust in science. Now you might say, what are you talking about? And the trust in science led to the extreme practice of eugenics. This was an attempt to eliminate crime, insanity, and other defects through selective breeding. It gave white supremacy the endorsement of science and led to the use of, for example, IQ testing. Fifth, the progressives attempted to legislate morality, and that led to the disastrous experiment known as prohibition in the 1920s. I'd go so far as to say it has led to other disastrous laws against illegal drugs and victimless crimes like prostitution. Instead of criminalizing it, these things could be regulated, as we are seeing with marijuana in many states. 
but that's a discussion for another day. Sixth, it was the progressives who presided over the first Red Scare in 1910 through 1920, uh, 1919 through 1920. This was one of the ugliest instances of violations of civil liberties in American history. Thanks to World War I, the progressives under Wilson got much of their agenda passed. However, the overreach of the progressives led to their defeat in the 1920 elections and the return to power of the Republican old guard. Millions of Americans had become tired of progressives and of progressivism. Okay, well, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, until next time, good day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com. 